Good morning and welcome to Denton North Church. Uh, we're going to get started now and I have a couple of announcements and whenever Brad can get his uh, self together, <laughs> we'll let him make his. Um, first of all, Don is going to make an announcement about uh, something new we have. Yeah, everybody, uh, in kind of concert with the InReach program, we have uh, put together an evening uh, that we'll be spending, Kurt and I, as your shepherds, will be leading the church family in some prayer, an hour. Uh, each time we get together, about once a month, uh, we'll be starting the 15th, uh, not this coming Monday, but the Monday following uh, at 7 o'clock. Uh, but we'll spend that time in prayer with you know a specific topic that month. Uh, this month, we're going to be focusing really more on uh, peace and healing as a nation for this upcoming year. Uh, but then the rest of the time will be spent praying for specific prayer requests that you guys will be sending us. Uh, we have a document that I saw posted in the chat, uh, but I believe we're also going to have the document posted either in the newsletter or on our Facebook page uh, that you can access. Uh, and then you can fill that out, turn that in. Uh, that way we can get your prayer requests. And if you would like that request to be anonymous, there is a place where you can mark that. And then we as leadership and shepherds will pray for that uh, request specifically uh, in a separate time. Uh, and then any requests that we don't get to, we'll email those individuals uh, with our prayer uh, that we have for those folks. So anyway, we really wanted to kind of build on an opportunity to, to, to grow and connect as a church family, uh, especially in prayer. Uh, Kurt put together a really good piece uh, explaining it uh, on our newsletters, so make sure you read that, and then uh, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get with us and let us know, but uh, looking forward to it. It should be a, a wonderful time, just one getting closer, and then also just getting closer to God and and uh, help you know, raising those concerns. Thanks, Don. Um, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for our church. Um, again, if you guys will read uh, the information in the newsletter, and also posted in the chat is a form that you can uh, put your prayer requests on. Um, but all the information you need should be there. And again, that's going to start on Monday the 15th. So you've got a little bit of time um, to kind of figure out the details of that. But that's going to be a time of prayer with our shepherds. Also, just a reminder um, that there is a giving button on the newsletter. And so uh, we still have... Uh, finances that we need to get taken care of. So make sure that uh, if you're not doing that, that you sign up for that and you're able to give um, through the website. Also remember that we've encouraged everybody to pray about and think about giving more um, as we add some staff to Denton North Church to cover those salaries. Um, and so be thinking and praying about that as well. But also just in general, um, I just want to really thank you guys for the consistency of your giving. Um, we've done really well in keeping our offerings up, and that's all because of you guys, because y'all have been consistent and you've been generous, and we appreciate that. Just a reminder that every week in the newsletter is the prompt for worship. Make sure that you're looking through that, doing the prompt, praying about it, so that you have something to share with your group on Sunday morning. And so that's just a reminder and then exciting news coming um, the first to middle of March, we're going to start meeting outside again at the GDAC as long as the weather permits. So uh, be praying about that, that we can have good weather so that we can meet again. And you can be looking forward to that as well. If you have any concerns or any questions about that, feel free to contact Brad or I and let us know and we can talk through and hopefully um, eliminate any concerns you might have about that. We'll be doing it the same as we did last time where we mask up and we social distance, um, but it'll be great to be able to be together in person again. Brad, did you get fixed where you can share your announcement? Hopefully. Yay, uh, that's better. Tong wanted me to announce Stupid Cupid, which is uh, on the 21st from 5 to 6.30. It's uh, apparently a gift exchange for guys bring a present that uh, you want for yourself. Uh, and uh, we'll do a gift exchange, it'll be on Zoom. 
we'll have you, whoever ends up winning the gift, you'll go and deliver that gift to them. It could just be dropping it on their porch or if you want to, uh, uh, to, you know, meet up, that's great too. But uh, again, under $30 and it's sort of like bring a gift for your wife that really you want for yourself. <laughs> I won't even try to give you more of the backdrop because Tong's got all kinds of puns involved. Uh, I'm just trying my best to relate to you what he planned. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, we have Garrett with us to bring our sermon to us this morning. And I think most of you know him, but I'm sure there are a few of you who don't. Um, so if you don't know Garrett, he is Brad's brother. He is Les and Judy's son. More importantly, he is Erica's husband, and most importantly, he is Jack and June's dad, and we are excited to have him with us this morning. Garrett's been on staff with Focus for quite a while, and Garrett is a real student of the Word, and not only the Word, but of Jesus and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, and he just does a lot of studying. He's very good at explaining uh, the word and the truths of the word. And we're excited to have him with us this morning. He speaks boldly and he speaks truthfully. And it's one of the things that I really appreciate about Garrett. He's going to talk this morning about uh, biblical views, about biblical authors and the view, their view of God and Jesus. And Garrett, we're glad to have you here. I'm going to pray for him and then I'm going to let him take over. Now, God, we just thank you for the opportunity to be together as a body this morning, and we thank you uh, for letting Garrett be with us and uh, teach us about your word and about the consistency of the Old and New Testament. We thank you for the life that he lives um, that really reflects following after Jesus and living a life devoted to him, and I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak through him to our body this morning what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, can you guys hear me? Thumbs up. Yeah, everyone hearing me okay? Okay, good deal. Uh, so I've beaten Brad already once today. Pretty used to that. It's a pretty common thing. So I had to get go ahead and get that one done from the get go. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to get to talk with you guys today. Um, you know, the the prompt is, I think the technically the prompt was biblical authors and their view of God and Jesus. Uh, which seems concise enough, considering that pretty much describes the entirety of the Bible um, in terms of what it is I'm supposed to be talking about today. But I think I understand um, what the, the actual uh, question, the actual prompt uh, is meant to be uh, describing. And that's essentially um, the question of, of, you know, looking at the Old Testament Yahweh and New Testament Jesus and sometimes we're left scratching our heads about uh, how the two are in fact one, um, because it seems that there's kind of a, a good cop, bad cop thing going on here. Um, I'm not sure if you guys also jive with that, um, but I think that's I think that's the heart of the question that I'm supposed to be um, addressing today uh, is just essentially how do we reconcile Jesus? with God? How do we, you know, um, how do we understand God through Jesus and Jesus through God and, you know, so on and so forth? Uh, as, as a quick note, um, I um, am not going to be speaking about the Holy Spirit, uh, and that's not because I'm a binarian, uh, but because the scope of, of this sermon is, is we, you know, we're discussing Old Testament God and New Testament uh, Jesus. And so just in case you guys are wondering why there's a, a lack of that, uh, I have to limit my scope. Otherwise, I will do um, what I'm sure you guys are used to, uh, which is filibustering about something for, for far too long. Um, so I don't know how long Brad's sermons typically are. Um, you know, he strikes me as the kind of guy that could wildly swing from an hour sermon to a 20 minute sermon. Um, so it kind of probably depends. That's probably is that accurate? Thumbs up if that's accurate. Okay, there you go. So my inference is correct. I love my brother. Um, he's the sweetest guy ever. And also we share that in common that we could do one of, of either of those two sermons. So I'm going to try keeping it shorter uh, for your sake today. Okay, so, uh, you know, in, in all of these things, um, I, I think it's important that that we as as believers hold in the highest reverence scripture and, and understanding uh, scripture as uh, God's authoritative word to us. Uh, in other words, I think it's important for us to be students of scripture, 
and trying to understand what it is that scripture is telling us about uh, God and Jesus. So just a little quick plug there that if we are not ourselves uh, really deeply trying to study the word on our own, uh, if we simply are waiting for people to deliver messages to us about the word, uh, and we are not like the Bereans, as uh, as as the as Acts talks about, uh, who go and diligently study the scripture to see if what people are speaking to them is actually true, uh, then we will be easily misled. And it is a time in human history where it is probably, I, I dare say, easy, more easy now than ever to be misled, because there are more ideas and there are there's more access to these ideas. If you can imagine. Uh, living in an ancient world in the first century in which you you're you're in the people that influenced you were within a square mile of you uh, for the most part and you can only have contact with so many people uh, today that's definitely not the case um so uh, a, a quick note uh, before we kind of get started into the, the the meat of the sermon is um you know I think perhaps one of the reasons that we have a hard time seeing Old Testament Yahweh and New Testament Jesus as the same, is that we by nature have a hard time accepting the nuance and the complexity of his range as a divine being. Um, a range that's often informed by you know, comp the, uh, complex variables such as you know, time and culture, situation, and a vast amount of other variables that are not ever going to be available to us to understand. Um, we enjoy, for the most part, an easy-to-categorize understanding of people, and that's certainly translated to the way that we see God. We think of people in, in caricatures almost. If you guys aren't familiar with what a caricature is, it's just a, an oversimplified cartoony painting or, or drawing of someone. And oftentimes our view of people, because we have these one-off interactions or um, we we're, we're engaging with them at, in, in terms of the things that they think about, God or politics or you know religion, culture, whatever, we begin to develop caricatures of people, which are really oversimplified understandings. Uh, and and we, we simplify complex human emotions, thoughts, experiences, so that we easily understand them. And the irony, of course, there is that that way of thinking does not actually help us understand people. Uh, it actually serves to hinder our ability to truly understand them. Uh, and it does the same thing with God. I think we're especially likely to do this with God, um, a being who is at at his at his very nature. Uh, he's inscrutable. He's he's mysterious. He's got there are things about God that you will not ever in this lifetime possibly understand. We don't like that. Uh, we don't we don't like to think that there are things that God keeps from us in that way. Um, but it's just like Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen. Um, that we see in a mirror dimly, uh, that we see only partially right now, uh, the entirety of, of who God is. Uh, and so it's important for us to, to be aware of the fact that there is some, some deep mystery involved in understanding God. So the invitation today is, is, is to not oversimplify God the way that we do to people. And while we're at it, we might not try, or we might try not oversimplifying people uh, either. Um, treating God and, and people like this leads to misunderstanding. It leads to distrust. It leads to discord. And it opens a door for our enemy to wreak havoc. Uh, if, if Satan can convince us that, that God is easily understandable um, and that we should judge based on first appearances or even on our preconceived notions, then we can really make a mistake here. Uh, and he'll do the same thing and does the same thing with people as well. So the invitation here is to put down whatever attachments that we have to easy answers, clear categories, and our existing notions about God, and begin to let God show us who he is on his own terms. Um, you know, perhaps perhaps God is, is something other than what we conceive of him to be in some very pleasant and also some very difficult ways. In uh, a word of caution here, uh, that, that if, if your acceptance of Jesus uh, or as of God is based on him turning out to be a certain way uh, that you want, then you should probably go ahead and put down your things and walk away at this point uh, because God is often not what we would have him to be, uh, which I think you would suppose to find that in, in the case of fallen humans in a perfect God. Um, but I've often heard students and, and, um, and people that I minister to on a regular basis 
say some form, a simplified form of a statement that's like something along the lines of like, if God doesn't blank or if like this blank, then I don't want to follow him. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is that uh, if we think that, we're ultimately just going to end up creating God in our own image. Uh, and if we do that, um, uh, then we can really uh, run aground uh, of some real problems in terms of interpreting who God is. But if I, as a fallen human being, find something displeasing about God, I have a choice to make. Either he is God or I am God. And that is the question of humanism. Either we are God or he is God. He can dictate to us reality and who he is, or we dictate to him who he is. And I think you guys understand where I'm, what I think is right. Either he's right or I am. And I can't help but think that, that much of our doubt and our trouble believing stems from a high estimation of ourselves in relation to God, as if God must explain himself to us and not the other way around. Uh, and if you're wondering what it's like to question God, then you can always look at the end of Job uh, and see what God's response to Job is, uh, which is humbling, I think, to say the least. Uh, surely you were around when God created the cosmos. Surely you understand all of the different variables in play in his, in his decision-making process. Uh, you know, God is sarcastic with Job as he, as he begins to show him, like, you don't get to question me. I question you. That is the nature of God to, to, to humans. My son doesn't question me in terms of my decisions, you know, uh, towards his parenting. He's three. And by the way, when I say he doesn't, I don't mean he actually doesn't. I mean, he shouldn't because he definitely does. Um, and so, um, you know, our starting point then has to be something like he is God. I am a human. And I will accept what he says. And if at some point we disagree, he must be right. Now, this doesn't mean that we settle for easy answers. You know, I've, you guys have heard the quote, uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, uh, which makes me have like a gag reflex, uh, you know, a, a lot of times of just the, like basically assuming that whatever the Bible says is what I believe. And I'm like, yeah, you don't seem to understand the fact that we're all reading the same Bible and thinking different things though. So this is not to, to downplay some of the difficulties uh, of interpreting scripture, uh, but it does mean that we pursue God from the outset as him judging us rather than the other way around. You don't get to judge God. You'll never get to judge God. He is God. You are a fallen human being. You have to allow God and his word to judge you. Uh, and that is, I think, at the crux of, of this kind of starting point of understanding Jesus, understanding God as he actually is, understanding his nature on his terms rather than on my terms. So we have to start from this point of humility and acknowledging that he is the way he is. And it's ours to understand and accept that way, not to, to try to create a God for ourselves. So uh, that being said, um, I'll, I'll try to, to just say, you know, maybe three-ish helpful things in terms of understanding how to, uh, to reconcile Old Testament God and, and New Testament Jesus. And I'll start by saying this, everything begins and ends with Christ. Everything begins and ends with Christ. That's Jesus. You might say, well, wait a second, don't I need the Old Testament in order to interpret Jesus? And I'll say, hold off a second. Let's just start with a point that the New Testament writers take for granted, all right? That Jesus is the beginning and the end. Colossians 2 uh, has continued to be a very useful um, chapter of scripture, you know, for me. Um, and in Colossians 2, 9, uh, we find Paul saying, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Part of the, the, the Jews' problems with Paul, a part of the, the, the long list of their problems with Paul, is that Paul's estimation of Jesus as being Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the hit the everything, was that they considered that to be a slap in the face to God. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit too here. Um, but Paul has what's called a high Christology, and it's something that any follower of Jesus would be would do well to imitate. 
And a high Christology essentially means what degree exactly uh, does this Jesus control everything? Paul says a hundred percent degree, the full degree. And then, of course, there are those among us who have some real Trinitarian hangups, right? Uh, we're like, wait, a, oh, big problem here. He's the son. What about the father? Doesn't the father control everything? I say, yep. Well, what about the spirit? Does, what, is, what does he do? And you say, yeah, definitely that as well. Uh, I think for some reason in our minds, we think uh, father, son, and spirit are somehow competitive with one another, as if you give one of them glory and the other one's like, wait a second, I'm the one that should have glory. They are one. They're one. But I just said they. How did I use that to describe the oneness of God? Uh, remember what I talked about in terms of inscrutability, in terms of some mystery here? There is some deep mystery to it. But if you think about it, God is this God who continually shows an interest, not just an interest, an obsession, if you will, with relationships. He shows this, this incredible desire to create us and to make us in his image, not to make robots or to make little things that will simply bow down to him, but make beings that he wanted to have relationship with. Explain to me how that would make sense if God was only just, just God and that's it in the sense that we tend to think of it. Father, the Trinity itself is an example of God's communion and his, his uh, desire for community, son and spirit are one but also separate and in relationship to one another. Um, and I know that that is, uh, that is a hard thing for us to swallow because we don't sense uh, very often uh, this, this kind of like, there's more than one and yet it's just one. Um, but I don't want to dive too much into that because my, my topic is not the Trinity, but rather how we relate father to son. Um, but it's enough to say that, that the scripture makes it abundantly clear, especially in the New Testament, that our understanding of God, when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? Our understanding of God is meant to be mediated by our understanding of Christ. That's our beginning point. He's the beginning and the, and the ending here. Revelation 22, starting in verse 12, finds Jesus saying, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last beginning and the end. And so whatever can be said about the Trinity, I'd like to suggest that God intends for us to understand both Father and the Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. New Testament writers interpreted the Old Testament through Jesus, because if what Jesus was saying was true, namely that he is God, then the Old Testament was literally inspired by his message to the writers of the Old Testament. It was him giving Isaiah the revelation of his own coming. It was he who spoke to Moses through the burning bush, and so on and so forth. In John, you find John calling Jesus the word of God, and that is certainly true here, that it was his word. Uh, that, that it was Jesus himself who was the word of God. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we see God's word, that's Jesus. Uh, but it's hard to reckon the Old Testament Yahweh if you treat Jesus like a new character on the scene. But the reality is that Jesus was around from the get-go. That's John's point in John 1. Um, speaking of John, in John chapter 8, verse 15, 55 and following, that's John 8, 55, you find Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who are essentially questioning him about, you know, how can you say all these things about God? And Jesus says something that, you know, really made them angry. He says, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have you seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So Jesus is making these very clear claims. You know, the, the people that have read the New Testament and said, you know, why doesn't Jesus just come right out and say, I'm God? I'm like, he said that exactly in this, in this verse and others, too. He literally just said, I am. He literally just said, I'm Yahweh. 
hint, hint. I was around before Abraham, uh, before he was born. I was God. Jesus is the Old Testament God. I have to point this out. Jesus is the Old Testament God. When you saw God acting in the Old Testament, you saw Jesus acting in the Old Testament. That's what the New Testament writers are saying. John 1, like I said, John 1, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 5, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, meaning Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light, that life, was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If I haven't proven this yet, I want to just do one more, you know, passage that hopefully can mediate our understanding. In John 14, starting in verse 8, you have an interaction between Philip and Jesus, and it's the most telling interaction that I could hope to, to, to make the connection between Jesus. So John 14 and uh, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So you have this really clear interaction, which Philip's like, he doesn't get it. He's like, just show us the Father. And Jesus is like, what? Like, okay, deal. Here I am. And that's, that's supposed to be the interaction that we're having with God as we read the Old Testament. If you want to see Jesus, read the Old Testament. If you want to see God, read the New Testament. You can see them in both. It's the, that's the idea. But whatever we do, we cannot forget the simplicity and the completeness of Jesus. It seems to me one of our greatest problems is that so many of our ideas and our ways are based on things other than Jesus himself. We've taken things that, that seem to be true about Old Testament Yahweh and that we know are not true about New Testament Jesus and then we claim that somehow that had, that's in line with God and his will. And that doesn't work. It's still astounding to me how far we travel down these ideological and cultural paths without asking ourselves the question, does this look like Jesus? Is this done with the spirit of Jesus? Or what would Jesus do and look like here? Those are the questions that should guide our actions and our thoughts. You know, in the beginning of that, that, that verse I quoted just a little while ago out of Colossians 2, right before he says what he says in verse 9 about Christ being the fullness of the deity, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the element spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So whatever we think about God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it is meant to be informed primarily through this man, Jesus. And if we can agree on that, then we might discuss two common errors in relation to understanding Old Testament Yahweh and New Testament Jesus. So there's these two errors, and those are my last two points too. So I don't know when we're supposed to end, but I'm assuming it'll be soon enough. Um, so the second thing is this, um, and this is not like a, a good point. In fact, I've broken my, all my own rules in describing this point. But anyway, the point is just that sometimes we fail to see God in Jesus. And you might have, the next point is that we fail to see Jesus and God, but I'll try to describe what each one of those things is and what the problem might be with each one. So this first one is just failing to see God in Jesus. In other words, failing to recognize the things in Jesus that look a whole lot like Old Testament Yahweh. Many people are so happy to hear the, the, the thing I just said, the previous point. They're like, yes, Jesus, because they fancy Jesus to be a little bit more than a friendly hippie. Uh, certainly, he's good cop in the good cop, bad cop analogy, for sure, right? Like, no one's like, Jesus is bad cop, God is good cop. Um, they believe in a peaceful protest, Jesus. They believe in a Jesus that, that said some lovely things and that did some lovely things, but never 
he never like showed his wrath. He never anything like that. These people clearly have not read Revelation and Jesus judging the nations, but we'll just leave Revelation aside because maybe it's just a bunch of abstract poetry that we shouldn't pay attention to. I actually don't think that, by the way, I'm just tongue in cheek. I'm sure Brad does something like that sometimes and it goes over everybody's head. So this is where both actually knowing the gospel and also understanding the Old Testament really comes in handy. As a side note about Testament, it's hard, like harder than the New Testament. And I want to make sure I make that really clear. It was longer ago. The context was harder. We have less cultural, uh, uh, actual history uh, that's going to, we have less artifacts to understand. We have less uh, in the way of being able to exegete than we do in the first century. That's not to say it's not understandable. It's meant to say we should probably approach the Old Testament with far more caution, even though it'd be good to approach both with caution in terms of just assuming you could understand something. Um, but oftentimes the Old Testament is being descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's chock full of different kinds of literature uh, that we don't even have anymore, like apocalyptic uh, and, and, and prophetic literature. Um, it's no wonder that the experts of the Old Testament in Jesus' day didn't recognize Jesus when he came as God. Think about that for a moment. All the experts who had been studying the Old Testament, all the experts who studied the law and the prophets, when Jesus showed up, there was no room in their mental schemas for Jesus. So in other words, it's easy to miss who God is. Thank God that we have Jesus to help interpret who he is. The truth is that God's character in the Old Testament, though, is perfectly consistent with Jesus' character in the New Testament. Our issues with God seem to be primarily rooted in three things. Uh, maybe it's more, and I've missed some of them. But the, the problem that we have with Old Testament God is that he's full of wrath and anger. And of course, that means that we've forgotten that Jesus entered into a temple and flipped tables over and drove them out with whips. Okay? Uh, that means that we also forget that he withered a, a harmless fig tree. Why did you do that, Jesus? The fig tree was just minding its own business, and you just caused it to, to, to wither. We forget that Jesus, full of anger, said the seven woes against the, Phar the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, that he called them children of the devil, okay? That he called his best friend Satan whenever his best friend tried to protect him from getting killed on a cross. Um, and think about how many times Jesus showed his frustration with people because of their lack of faithfulness, that kind of stuff. You're telling me Jesus was just across the board, just so kumbaya about things. Clearly, we haven't, we haven't really uh, internalized the Jesus that we're seeing in the New Testament because Jesus had wrath. Jesus was angry in certain cases. The question becomes, what is it that God's angry about? And in the Old Testament, as we see him act in wrath, and as we see him act out of his anger, we must ask ourselves the question, what are the things that God is angry about? Because we're meant to internalize those things and be similarly angry about those things. Another problem that we have with Old Testament Yahweh seems to be his permitting of evil. There's some really bad stuff that goes down in the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, and, and the reality is, is like I said before, the old Testament, just because something bad happens, doesn't mean that's something that God wanted first and foremost. In fact, oftentimes when evil things happen in the old Testament, you're supposed to judge it and be like, God didn't want that. And yet he did permit it. And the same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus stays silent on so many things he could have spoken into in the first century. If you think it's bad right now, yikes, the first century was way rougher. On top of all that, he allowed himself to be killed, thus permitting evil. He allows many of his disciples to be killed and persecuted after his death. He even allowed John the Baptist, the guy who was a forerunner uh, of, of, of his own life and ministry, he allows John the Baptist to be beheaded because of a dancing girl. Does that sound fair to you? Does that sound like th th that's Old Testament Yahweh? And he allows and permits evil sometimes. Not to say that he's the one that's committing it but rather that he allows it. And so in that, we must ask ourselves the question, God, what are you doing here? Rather than saying, God, why didn't you act? Because if God didn't act, he did the best thing. That's a thing that's hard for us to understand whenever we come up against uh, all kinds of different problems. 
is that we're supposed to be asking ourselves, God, what do you want me to do here? God, what, what are you doing here? Not condemning God because he's allowed it. Another issue that we have with the Old Testament Yahweh, before we move on, is his seeming distance from people. It seems like Old Testament Yahweh uh, is, is okay with distancing himself from people, as if Jesus wasn't, considering the fact that Jesus often withdrew to places, considering the fact that usually when a big started following Jesus, he escaped and literally, I mean, as often as he could, tried to get away from the bigger crowds. Uh, we ignore the fact that out of all the people he could have chosen in the world and all the people he could have had follow him, he only chose 12. And then within that circle, only allowed free to kind of be his closest friends. And then ignoring the larger fact, of course, that in his public ministry was only three years in human history. So clearly there's some, some real coordination between what we're seeing from Old Testament Yahweh and New Testament Jesus. There's a lot more than that. But since we see some overlap, at least, the question that ultimately comes to us is, will we judge God for his actions, or does he judge us for ours, like I said before? And the perspective of, of, of doubt, this coming from a place of doubt, seems to be, in my mind, overly applauded in these days. But we have to be careful with doubt, because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament in human form. And there are things that while you might initially doubt, should give way to trust in God. They're not meant to stay doubt. Doubt is not meant to be, uh, not meant to remain there. If you look at the imprecatory Psalms, which I'm sure you guys have in your lament services, what you ultimately find is that the Psalm writers come to a place where they trust God, have to rely on the fact that even though they don't understand, and even though there are things that really rub them wrong, about God, that they ultimately come to this place of, but you, your judgments, and who you are, are not questionable in that sense. Their ultimate resolution is that even amongst all their questioning, which is the way Job ends, even though he is, uh, he is uh, tested and tried for no fault of his own, we should end with what Job says, after God says to him the big you know, brace yourself like a man, I'm going to, I'm going to question you and you're going to answer me, which is what that's like, literally what he says. Can you imagine God saying that to you? I'd be like, Oh, Lord. Um, so what Job ultimately says is at the end of Job, he's like, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Surely I spoke about things that are way above my pay grade. I'm paraphrasing, by the way, that's the, probably like the message version or something. Um, so I spoke about things that are way too big for me. There are going to be things as we read about Old Testament Yahweh, and hopefully as we begin to understand the overlap between Jesus and Old Testament Yahweh, there are going to be these things that were like, yikes. Like that one time when Jesus told his brothers, I'm not going to the festival. And then he goes to the festival. And you're like, did God just lie? What do I do with that? Oh, no. You know what I mean? And so some versions add this, I'm not yet going to the festival. And I'm like, yeah, but guess what? That's not in the Greek at all. He says, I'm not going to the festival. And then he goes to the festival. And so there are going to be plenty of things like that. If you're paying attention to the New Testament, don't think those are only limited to the Old Testament. Those are also, Jesus' actions are full of things that should leave you scratching your head. But what that should do is, is it should cause us to lean in, pay attention. Who is God? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about his priorities? What does this tell me about what it means to have a relationship with him? Rather than saying, well, God did something wrong. Why did God kill all those nations? Why did God allow these evil things? We should be asking ourselves the question of who God is in this and, and deferring to him. And then the last thing is this, um, uh, the, the failing to see Jesus in God, failing to see Jesus in God. In other words, failing to see in Old Testament Yahweh, the things that we love and already admire and see to be true about Jesus. It's as if we think God, like, by the way, our theology cannot be that God wants to, to or that the Old Testament Yahweh, the Father wants to kill us, and Jesus saved us from him killing us. It's not as if 
Jesus is like, God, 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 please don't kill these people. They're my buddies. Guys, God sent Jesus. The Father sent Jesus. He's on the same page about that. He saved us. Okay, like we have to understand that. Jesus isn't protecting us from a, from a punitive God. God himself is the one that offered us grace. This last failure, this failure to see Jesus and God, stems from a poor reading of the Old Testament. And if we cannot find Jesus' character in the God of the Old Testament, we just have not read it, period, or we're not, read it looking, we're not reading it looking for Jesus. Because it is important to understand, uh, or sorry, it is important to read and understand the Old Testament, because it does form the basis of God's work in the world, as well as his relationship to it. The Old Testament is very important. Don't hear me say just because Jesus is the beginning and the end, that means that we can just cut out the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament does give us some insight, even into Jesus's character. But without Jesus to help us interpret it, it's impossible for us to get where we need to be. So there's plenty of examples of this in the Old Testament, but you could even just start with creation. The fact that a God who didn't need anything decided that he was going to, to, to create us and create the cosmos is in and of itself an example of a very good and loving and caring father. The reason that I created my children, if you want to call it that, I mean, I had help, uh, but the reason for that, it was not because I was like, I need some extra help around the house. Let me tell you something, guys, that would have been a real mistake because my children have provided to be less than helpful around the house. Uh, in fact, you might even say they cause more problems than what they solve. Um, and so I didn't create my children because of something I could receive in return. My life was just fine beforehand. I wasn't pining for children either. Uh, but rather, I created my children because I loved them. And you might say, how can you love something before you've made them? And I'm like, just be a parent. You'll understand. You did it out of love. You did it because of a connection of love that you had with the person with you. And you were like, you know what, let's make this love into a person as well. And I understand that I just, you know, we're kind of talking our way. But that is certainly what God has given to us as well. Sex is a really good thing in the right context. Um, but what, what, the, what the problem is, was not God. In the Old Testament, the problem is never God. God's the protagonist. If you haven't read the Old Testament and understood God's the good guy, we're the bad guy, then you've misread it. We were constantly moving our way away from God, and constantly God as a good father kept coming back and saying, come on, come on, come on, come back into the fold. Let me help you. Read the Old Testament. It's an entirety in a couple of weeks, and you will just be blown away by the goodness and the gracefulness of God even before Jesus. Jesus's character is Old Testament Yahweh. Um. You know, and so even beginning in the garden, you see that, you know, even with our sin, God still decides to provide for us and still decides to have relationship with us, even though he could have just cast us out and been done with us at that point. The prophets are certainly full of God's anger at Jerusalem's unfaithfulness, but they are similarly full of his hope and his intention to forgive and to renew. Yahweh so eagerly wanted a relationship of love with his people. And isn't that Jesus? So much so that he he literally decided that his big that his big idea was I'm going to die for them to show them that I love them. That's God. That's Old Testament Yahweh that did that. The Father was the one who sent the Son. After all, right? There's a there's a there's a a, a, a verse or sorry a chapter out of Hosea that's always stuck with me. I love Hosea because Hosea is in a nutshell our story with God. God was a faithful husband who wanted to love us and to be with us. And we hoard ourselves out to the world. And that's the word that he uses. So sorry if I've offended you by saying that word. Sorry, Ezra. Sorry, Willow. Don't, don't repeat that. So Hosea 2. I'm going to just read it in its entirety. I think I'm good on time, maybe, because I'm almost done. I promise. I'm so sorry. I'm good. Okay, cool. So I'm just going to read Hosea 2 to you. Don't follow along. Just listen to God speak. Like, just listen to God speak. Listen to the love in his voice. Just hear Jesus in this. Because this, what he's going to do is he's going to make a turn. At first, you're going to be listening to Hosea 2, and you're going to be like, yep, that's the Old Testament God that I know. But then listen, listen, listen to what happens in the middle of it, okay? Hosea 2 starts with this. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. For she is not my wife, 
and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but will not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Acor, <coughs> Acor excuse me, a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declare the Lord, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Yeah, I am clearly a huge baby and struck by that. Not sure how often you've heard Brad cry or seen him cry, but unfortunately that is regular for me. Um, but I can't help but read that and not be touched. We think Old Testament God didn't love us, wasn't graceful, wasn't graceful to us from the get-go, didn't want the things that Jesus showed from the get-go. Guys, God is the good guy. From the get-go, the love of Christ was displayed through God of the Old Testament. He wanted so badly to be in right, loving, marital relationship with us. It was us who wronged him. It was us who did that. The Old Testament reads like a continual story of God trying to reel his beloved children in and they dishonor, disobey, and reject him. Then he comes back. You know, think about the, the prodigal son. That's the heart of Jesus. I'm struck by this thing that Jesus says 
right before he walks in Jerusalem to be murdered by them, by murdered by his own people, he says, this is Matthew 23, starting in verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Think about that. That is Old Testament. I've longed to have relationship with you, right relationship with you. So Jesus is clearly all over the Old Testament, which is why the New Testament writers could take such liberties interpreting the Old Testament text to be speaking about Jesus. I think sometimes we outsmart ourselves uh, on some of these counts. We're like, well, they weren't talking about Jesus, so it couldn't be about Jesus. And I'm like, well, Jesus is God. And if they're talking about God, they're talking about Jesus. Don't forget, after all, that it was the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who whiffed the hardest on Jesus. Just remember that in terms of uh, if we're, we're pursuing too hard, this kind of uh, this uh, intellectual learning of the, of the Bible. So in conclusion, God has from the get-go been the good father. His character has not changed. He has continually shown us love, even when that love called for punishment. And Jesus is the one who gives us the greatest insight into the father's heart and character, because he and the father are one. Hear this if you hear nothing else. We have to internalize Jesus. If you want to see the Father, you must look at the Son. If you've seen the Son, that isn't enough. I'm going to say a prayer for us and wrap this up. Father, you're so good. Thank you so much for how you've blessed us. Thank you so much for your remarkable consistency since the beginning of time, Father. You have showed us your love and your grace. And in these last times, Father, you have shown us through Jesus so much more about who you are. I pray, God, that you would help us to not be at odds with you, Father. Help us to be a faithful spouse to you. God, we love you so much. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for the revelation of scripture and pray that you would help us to become faithful and humble children of yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Garrett. And um, I think that one of the things we want you to hang on to out of this sermon is that Jesus is the Old Testament God. That's going to be so important going forward in this sermon series. I also want to remind you that the sermons are recorded and they're available for you to listen to again on our um, website, DentonNorthChurch.com. Um, and I would encourage you that any of the sermons that we do that you're like, gosh, I wish I could think about that uh, more closely, or I missed this that he said, go back and listen to those. Um, and I'm sure if you have any questions, Garrett would be happy to talk with you about that as well. So feel free to contact him if you want to talk about that further or any of us as well. Um, but we're going to go ahead and break out uh, into worship groups. Yeah, so... Um... I'll kind of tee up our worship thing and Judy Davis uh, is going to do some readings for us while I screen share the, the text that she's reading. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. And then we'll go into the breakout rooms and discuss our usual three questions. Um, so we're in this large series where we're uh, exploring the story of the gospel through our worship in January, we're focused on creation. And for February, we're going to be focused on the fall as in like, you know, the story of the fall in the garden of Eden. And uh, so we're starting that off today. And we're going to start by uh, just reading Genesis 3. And so uh, Judy's going to read that, and I'm going to screen share uh, the text while she's reading it. Um, and then we'll go into our breakout rooms. Okay. Um, now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fr fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the trees in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his woman and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, um, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, um, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I forgot to mention this, but I also asked Judy to... Uh read for us this quote from your Christianity, which is just a brief ref reflection on the fall. This is, and this is amazing. It says, the moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. Some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that's a mistake. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Um, I'll leave this image up uh, while I continue talking before we go into our breakout rooms, just so you can reflect on it. It's from the Bible Project. Um, yeah, so this month we'll probably have more of a uh, like lament confession kind of, uh, I don't know, tone to it than the most of our months in this series. Um, so yeah, we're going to break into our groups and we'll have our usual three questions. So uh, first of all, start by praying and remember that um, it, it doesn't have to be just like a quick check it off introduction to the group kind of prayer. The prayer is part of the the meat of the group, like the, the point of it. Um, so start with prayer. And then uh, what does what does this say about the heart of God? What might God be saying to me or to our community? And what would it look like to respond to God in obedience? Um, so with that. Uh, whoever's breaking us up into our groups, please go ahead and do that.
Okay, guys, that's it for today. Thanks for being here and for participating in our worship groups today. If you want to stay and hang out and talk for a bit, you're welcome to do that. But that's um, all we got today. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.